everyone. Welcome back to Interpersonal. This is Hannah. My pronouns are she and her. And Aggie. My pronouns are she and her. And we're both graduate student representatives of the Child Maltreatment and Interpersonal Violence Special Interest Group at ABCT. The Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies is an international organization composed of researchers, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, social workers, marriage and family therapists, nurses, and other mental health practitioners and students. Within ABCT, there are special interest groups, or SIGs for short, where ABCT members can gather and connect. As part of the effort to disseminate research findings to a broader audience, we interview SIG members about their current projects and implications for future research and practice. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Amy Lee, a clinical psychology postdoc at Stony Brook University. You know, as a student, this interview was insightful on a lot of different levels. Yeah, this episode emphasizes both training and research and how the two really influence each other. It's useful to hear about Dr. Lee's ongoing projects, but also this trajectory of her career, especially her overall theme of increasing access to evidence-based trauma treatment and where she finds that in her training and her academic work, but also just as applied research. Hi, my name is Dr. Amy Lee. Um, my pronouns are she and her. And I'm currently a um, postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Psychology at Stony Brook University with Dr. Kristen Bernard. So I am a clinical child psychologist by training. So my degree is in clinical psychology and I have interests and expertise in childhood trauma, particularly interpersonal forms of trauma such as child maltreatment. So my current work focuses on developmental mechanisms linking childhood trauma with later psychopathology and understanding the impact of current evidence-based interventions such as trauma-focused cognitive behavior therapy on these developmental outcomes. And I am passionate about making evidence-based interventions such as TFDBT accessible and engaging for youth from historically marginalized communities. So including, but not certainly not limited to immigrant, racial, ethnic minority, or low-income families. To start off, I think it would be really great if you could talk a little bit about your training experience. So kind of the experience moving from like grad school to internship to postdoc and kind of how these interests have kind of developed over that time and that experience. So my interest in childhood adversity or trauma really began at Stony Brook University, um, which is really interesting. I was actually enrolled in a one-year master's program here, two years prior to enrolling in my PhD program at St. John's University. Um, and I actually got to work with Dr. Bernard, who is now my postdoc mentor. So it feels very much like I've come full circle. And I knew early on, I was able to dabble in a lot of different types of experiences during that one year at Stony Brook. And I knew very early on that childhood adversity and trauma were kind of what I wanted to focus on in my own studies. And I think what drew me to it are just, you know, the ability to intervene at this developmentally critical time period when we could make, you know, such a big difference, as well as the idea of leveraging, you know, children and families on resilience and, and sort of their aiding in their recovery from trauma were some of the pieces that really drew me in. So from there, I was able to um, obtain a position coordinating a an RCT. Um, actually, it was for 9-11 responders in the following year, working with Dr. Adam Gonzalez, still here at Stony Brook, but in the Department of Psychiatry. And again, kind of being able to see what kind of impact trauma can have and how uh, pervasive and, and long-lasting um, it can be. 
uh, really cemented my interest in w working with children and also trauma. And I was able to enroll in the PhD program in clinical psychology at St. John's University, which is in Queens, New York. I got wonderful training in evidence-based interventions for children and adolescents. I also got to work in several different hospitals in and around New York. And so I was navigating the delivery of these evidence-based interventions in very real-world settings with families that were facing a lot of psychosocial burden. And at the same time, my graduate school advisor, Dr. Alyssa Brown, was a phenomenal mentor who was able to integrate clinical and research endeavors pretty seamlessly in, in her work. And so in our lab, which is called the Child Health Partnership, we conducted a community-based effectiveness trial of TFCBT and other evidence-based interventions for traumatized youth. And Queens is extremely diverse, so we actually had a majority-minority families that we worked with. And so I got to have a part in um, these efforts, all aspects from conducting assessments with families to managing, you know, treatment outcome data to helping design and roll out a new research protocol focused on stress physiology. And then to, of course, then being able to evaluate some of these data, which was what my dissertation focused on. During internship or while I was looking for internship sites, I had been collaborating with Dr. Bernard throughout my graduate training anyway. And so we got to talking and she was able to offer me some research time as part of my internship year if I were to match at Stony Brook. Knowing that I really wanted an academic career where I would have a hand at mentoring was able to match here at Stony Brook where I began to work again closely with Dr. Bernard in the Developmental Stress and Prevention Lab. It just seemed like a no-brainer that I would continue um, that work uh, in my postdoc year at and so that's where I've been. And, and while my position currently is about 90% research, I do have about 10% of time that's devoted to actually seeing TFCBT cases as well as continuing my DBT training. So that's been really awesome too. That's really great. And it sounds like you got a lot of like that really targeted experience. And it's very cool that you found you were ended up being at an internship where you just felt like it was such a good fit. Yeah. And I'm happy to talk more about that because I, I definitely think internship is set up to make you feel like, you know, this is sort of like make it or break it for your career for people who are in clinical psychology. And I definitely think there's a lot of room for flexibility and thinking about your priorities. And it's very personal, I think. It's helpful to think about sort of your own priorities and whether that be life priorities or career priorities or gaps you're trying to fill before you can kind of launch your career. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of things about the process of matching for internship that makes it feel like you may be, you may have no choice but to rank certain sites higher, for instance, but, and yet, um, if those sites don't align closely with your own priorities for that year, that's kind of setting you up to have, you know, um, a really difficult year in what's already an intense year of your training. Um, as you talked about uh, these different settings that you've moved through and how important accessibility and treatment is to you, um, has your idea of like what it means for treatment to be accessible changed through your training? Oh, that's a really thought-provoking question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my um, perspective on this definitely comes from a trauma-informed lens, right? Knowing that exposure to chronic interpersonal traumas during childhood is, you know, a really robust risk factor for, you know, multiple forms of psychopathology across the lifespan. And we know that youth from historically marginalized communities um, not only experience more trauma, but that they are less likely to access 
evidence-based interventions for the impact of these traumas. Yeah, and so I've definitely thought a lot about, um, I think that that training in terms of being out there in the real world, thinking about how we can make these treatments accessible for youth and families who face so many barriers to uh, accessing these treatments definitely made me think a lot about where I want to take my work and the focus of my work. There were a lot of times when I was working in, you know, for instance, a more acute setting like an inpatient unit where we were then having to, you know, arrange for follow-up care for our patients and could not even find, you know, a clinic that would offer something like TFCBT. And so that taught me a lot about, you know, that gap that exists between research and practice, of course, how much wider of a gap that is for youth and families who may not have the means to seek out these resources or um, who may not have insurance or who may have, you know, only publicly funded insurance, for instance. I think it's so interesting to hear people talk about how clinical training impacts what their research is and how research impacts what their clinical work is, you know, especially in your dissertation when you work so much on executive functioning, thinking about like accessibility in treatment for um, kids who just have varying levels of, you know, this big thing we call executive functioning. Yes, definitely. And like the fact that trauma ties to youth or trauma exposed to youth will have difficulties across settings, right? It's not necessarily just, you know, when they come into your clinic um, or sitting in front of you for a session, but they will have these difficulties in in regulating themselves um, at school with peers. And of course, these things then all kind of feed back into their mental health and life outcomes. But yeah, so my dissertation was really uh, motivated by trying to answer this question of what's responsible for this link between trauma exposures during childhood and outcomes across multiple contexts, across mental health, academic functioning, and just functional impairment. I came upon executive function, which has been linked with increased risk for PTSD symptom development after trauma exposures among youth, and yet had not ever been looked at as an outcome of something like TFCBT, which does aim to equip youth with strategies for self-regulation, right? Would you be able to just give us a little bit of an overview of how you conceptualize that in your research? So executive function is a set of higher order cognitive abilities that are mediated by our prefrontal cortex that allow deliberate and and flexible coordination of our thoughts, emotion, and behavior and, and moves us toward our goals. Research suggests three interrelated but sort of indistinguishable components of executive function, which are inhibitory control, cognitive flexibility, and working memory. So inhibitory control is like the ability to resist um, more automatic responses. Cognitive flexibility allows us to shift and adapt as things change. And working memory is the capacity to hold information in our heads and manipulate it for a task that we're trying to complete. And collectively, these skills are really are necessary for planning, organizing, and executing more com- complex goal-directed behaviors while managing um, distractions and, and other things that may come up and get in the way. So the way that I conceptualize executive function for this particular study is that it is sort of the behavioral output of the executive function skills that are working um, to produce that output, right? And and so caregivers are able to observe that in the real world context with these youth. Maybe we should note it's like, it's a more like generalized outcome, but I thought what was really exciting about your dissertation was it's much more like generalized skill, general improvement in a youth's life. 
Yes. I, and I, again, I think that is clinically what we often observe um, for, you know, these youth and, and families, and yet not something we often assess as a treatment outcome. So I, I hope to change that uh, with my um, future studies as well. So I think it's like an exciting question of like, um, what do we want and what do we expect trauma therapy to do for people who elect to be part of it? Um, and, the, you know, this is like a paper that takes a really broad look at like, this is what we can hope for, or this is what we want to be working towards as a field, especially when we think about like trauma indexing many concerns that someone has, like a trauma brings you to therapy. And then what happens once you're there? Yes, exactly. I think you put it really nicely. Um, and, I, and I think that, again, thinking about youth from historically marginalized communities, um, these are especially important questions to consider when we're thinking about equity and, and ensuring equity um, in outcomes. And so my dissertation focused on using data from that effectiveness trial of TFCDT um, within my lab, and I used latent growth curve models to examine linear trajectories of executive function changes from pre to mid to post-treatment data during TFCBT. I did this separately for children ages 6 to 11 and adolescents ages 12 to 17, just based on some evidence that executive function development has sort of the second sensitive period during early adolescence. It importantly established that, established that youth coming in for trauma-specific treatments and and these were, again, really racially, ethnically uh, diverse sample of, of majority um, racial, ethnic minority youth. These youth were coming in with significant executive function difficulties out in the real world as reported by caregivers, which was the measure of executive function that we used. So I think first that's notable that, right, that we can expect youth who are presenting for treatments like TFCVT to have a measure of difficulty with executive functioning out in their real world, which again, like you were saying, could have implications for how we plan treatment and how we implement treatment as well. These executive function difficulties did decrease over the course of treatment. By the time we went, looked at post-treatment data, youth were actually scoring at about the normative ranges, which is also really exciting. So again, this is not an RCT, so we don't have causal evidence to say this TFCBT is responsible for that change, of course. But I think it is some exciting preliminary evidence that existing evidence-based interventions such as TFCBT may be able to move some of these other outcomes that we know are important for youth functioning out in the real world. And then as follow-up analyses, I also looked at whether these changes in executive function difficulties were related to PTSD symptom reduction over the course of treatment. And here we found a really interesting developmental difference where adolescents, 12 to 17, but not for younger children, there was a significant positive association between executive function um, change and PTSD symptom reduction. So essentially, those were related processes for adolescents. So those who, who improved faster in their executive function difficulties tended to also improve faster in their PTSD symptoms and, and vice versa. Again, the directionality of this is a little bit unclear from the data that we have, but hopefully will be something that future research can look at. I think how we interpreted that finding in terms of the difference between children and adolescents is that adolescence is a really 
exciting <laughs> time developmentally, right? There's a lot more autonomy and opportunities to function in autonomous ways from their caregivers. And so possible that when adolescents are able to improve in their executive function skills, that some of that is what's facilitating their response to, let's say, trauma reminders and therefore the PTSD symptom reduction. And then for children who are younger, we, we expect that some of that change will, in contrast, be still dependent on their caregivers and the, their caregivers' sort of scaffolding of, of coping skills and coaching of those in the moment when they're faced with trauma reminders or having trauma reactions. I just want to make an important distinction that this is not to say that caregiver involvement in TSCBT is not important for, for adolescents at all, mm -hmm. right? We still expect that caregiver support and response to um, sharing of the narrative, for instance, can have, you know, a profound impact on adolescents' recovery from trauma. But but it is sort of their independence and sort of their ability to have more diverse array of, of executive function skills and self-regulation strategies that we think maybe we may be able to leverage that, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good clarification too. And kind of thinking about, you know, there's still, there's still adolescents and there's still youth and they still have this, this relationship or this dependence on these caregivers, but then also really valuing kind of that difference in just like development and where they're at. Are you right about this? But um, executive function is such a big deal, like across diagnoses and problems in living. Is it the case that you know you see TFCBT as really addressing executive function mm -hmm. difficulties? And it's like, I'm gonna make treatment more accessible by adding, for example, visual aids or more structure, it's like a suggestion yeah. in your discussion, versus I'm gonna make it so that we can make referrals to really good separate services that target these executive function difficulties? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Yes. So, so I think this is sort of the question that we don't know the answer to, right? So how much of this is driven by t uh, trauma exposure and can be resolved with treatments like TFCBT versus how much of this do we still need to address after youth has completed a treatment, a robust treatment like TFCBT and kind of seen its benefits? So I think that's part of the, the motivation for, for my program of research more broadly is to really try to understand how do treatments like TFCBT impact youth functioning in their life, right, outside of, you know, just sort of their, their clinical presentation, which of course has implications for functioning as well. Um, but given that these, these children and adolescents are still developing and that their competence in, in schools and with peers, again, is such a huge, has the ability to make such a huge impact on the rest of their development, I think it, it sort of begs the question of, you know, can we look at these developmental processes as outcomes and not just something that we kind of toss aside because we're focused on mental health? And, and I think that's also very driven by my own clinical observations, of course, of working with traumatized youth and families, right? You know, I can think of cases where so many times youth were not able to go to school, they were not able to tolerate being at school and were at risk of dropping out, for instance, and, and treatment did resolve that, right? They were able to kind of go back to school and kind of face those trauma reminders and, and be on their way to graduating high school, for instance, and, and applying to colleges. So I think these are really important outcomes to look at. And, and again, could be also what's driving some of the inequalities that we see or disparities in outcomes um, among trauma-exposed youth, particularly among youth from historically marginalized communities. 
So then kind of using that as a jumping off point for your pilot study that you're planning, can you tell us a little bit about that, what that process has looked like so far and what the next steps look like? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm really excited about this pilot study um, and have been working on the IRB submission at the, at the moment. So it's fresh on my mind. We were interested in thinking about piloting a group-based um, TFCBT. So the group protocol for TFCBT exists and is obviously evidence-based um, and is, no, is, is shown to be effective. There was a paper by Dr. Aisha Metzger, who I believe also was a podcast guest on this. So she has actually proposed adaptations to the TFCBT protocol to integrate what's called racial socialization um, as a resilience factor for Black youth and families. And I think this is particularly important gap in the research, given that we know that Black youth are less likely to engage in trauma-specific treatments and more likely to also um, not complete it um, and, and end the treatment prematurely. And some of that may very well be because we're not recognizing or acknowledging um, the additional trauma that these youth face, um, racial trauma, as well as attempting to address that during trauma-specific treatment. And so we were able to get some funding from Division 53, uh, the, early, the Child Mental Health and Action Funding Award, as well as the EP Early Career Service Grant to really pilot this program here at Stony Brook, where we are going to be recruiting Black youth and, and their caregivers from the community with histories of both interpersonal and racial trauma, and then implementing this group um, treatment with the adaptations proposed by Dr. Metzger. And we really hope to just establish acceptability and feasibility um, in this first evaluation, but then hopefully we'll be able to continue to offer this group and even look at something like effectiveness. And I should also say that I was able to get this off the ground uh, with support from my postdoc mentor, Dr. Kristen Bernard, who has been a part of this, um, these efforts, as well as Dr. Wilfred Farkasen, who is uh, the, the clinic director in the Department of Psychiatry for the Child and Adolescent Clinic. And as well as we're able to collaborate with Dr. Aisha Metzger, who's going to provide consultation for the group clinicians and supervisors who are going to be running this group. That's great. Yeah. I mean, we loved getting to talk with Aisha. I think she just has so much knowledge and she's so fun to talk to. And I can imagine, I think it's really cool that you're doing kind of this adaptation of TFCBT, but then also within the group format. And I'm really curious to see like how those two like interplay. And I imagine that that would be really beneficial. Yes. I think the group, I, I actually don't have any firsthand like clinical experience of running a TFCBT group. And I think it's sort of an underused model. Um, and yet it can be really powerful to leverage that um, social support piece, right? That can come with group treatment and sort of uh, again, with families who have a common background and common experiences of trauma, such as racial trauma, which can be so chronic, we think that this could be especially powerful to kind of be able to leverage that social support piece for these families. And because of your experience in relatively so many different clinical settings for your training, how do you think about like choosing clinicians for an intervention study? First and foremost, I was it was very important to me that we're able to kind of compensate clinicians for their time, um, even though this is obviously a, a great training experience as well. This was something that we offered and opened up to the entire group of um, trainees who received the three-day training TFCBT, and so we're already sort of on board with the initiative and, and really 
um, enthusiastic about learning the model and applying it in their clinical work and sort of thinking about people who can partner with us in, in these efforts, I think is really important, certainly. You know, I think in order for you to sign up for something like this, which is probably something that's extra, right, not, not sort of required of you for your training, but can certainly enrich it, I think it's important to think about, you know, people who are going to volunteer for these roles and really be enthusiastic about contributing to as well as, you know, learning with us. I'm really grateful, actually, for for those um, trainees who volunteer to lead the group. And I love, I mean, thinking about the value of trainees. So I like your note about kind of like compensation. And I think that that's a big issue that I think has been coming up more and more is just sort of thinking about how do we compensate folks, especially I think trainees or like early career professionals who might be engaging in this work on top of their responsibilities. Yes. Absolutely. So I kind of want to jump back to, we had previously talked a little bit about um, your training experience and those sorts of things. And it sounds like you are kind of in the midst of navigating um, the job market. And so we were hoping that you could just give us a little bit of insight into like maybe what you feel like is helpful for other people to be thinking about, especially maybe those who are currently or will soon be looking for jobs um, within like academia. Yeah, I hope you saw my face, <laughs> my face, my facial expression, <laughs> Texas. Um, very palpable anxiety. I think that surfaces when the job market is mentioned. Um, which is to be expected, I think. But yeah, it's a great question and I'll try to be as helpful as I can. I think my most helpful advice is probably that you're already doing what you need to be doing <laughs> for the career that you want. And at the same time, it may be helpful to think about where the gaps might be. And so maybe, you know, like for myself, I hadn't done a lot of teaching during my graduate training because most of my um, fellowship was focused on research. So that was something I considered doing or just trying to kind of fill in that gap of doing more guest lectures or even thinking about, you know, teaching a course as an adjunct. I also knew going into internship year that that extra time of research that could be carved out for me during internship would be critical in sort of setting me up for success if I wanted to apply this year, which I really did. And so I think thinking about sort of long-term plans and, and thinking about how you can fill those gaps using your internship year if possible. It's often not possible, but I think certain sites do, you know, kind of encourage that or carving out time for, for your own projects and sort of your own endeavors. And then certainly during postdoc year, you know, where are the gaps and, and how can you fill them and what will kind of propel you, you know, forward, I think is, is worth thinking about earlier on, even as a graduate student. Um, with all of that said, I actually will discourage people from looking too far ahead <laughs> because the job, job market is unpredictable, um, especially now with the pandemic. And I think even Without the pandemic, there are so many factors that are outside of our control that are specific to the institution, the department, the needs of, of that specific program, right? Um, these are often things that are not specified or written anywhere. And so I think it's important to think, think about that and, and know that some of this is not necessarily anything that you can do anything about. And so I think given that it's important to enjoy the experience of where you are right now, and, and try to take it all in without kind of getting too far ahead of, of, of yourself, which I'm certainly guilty of many times. Speaking of enjoying yourself along the training road, do you have any things that you especially have loved about your training? Oh, 100% the people I've met, my cohort mates in particular, who are very, very dear to me now. I definitely think finding a support system, people who will 
cry with you when things don't work out, people who will celebrate with you even when you don't feel like celebrating. They are just so invaluable um, in, in helping you kind of navigate the ups and downs of, of this process and, and academic careers. And if I have one tangible advice to prepare for the job market, I think it would be to go to job talks. If, if your department ever has is going through the hiring process while you're a graduate student, then, then by all means, go to the talks, ask questions, know more about the process, be in those committees with the other students asking questions to those job candidates. I think you can probably learn a lot by doing that. To kind of finish up, what we want to know a little bit about how you learned about the SIG and what made you interested in it in the first place. I've been a member of ABCT since first year of graduate school, and so have definitely been to all of the, the conferences and presented at them. I think I actually only recently joined the SIG, however, which I wish I had joined it earlier, and that was probably um, because I was forcing myself sort of out of my comfort zone in terms of networking and and trying to be really more out there talking about my work and connecting with folks like you to talk about things that are that are interesting to us and so that was kind of what propelled me to create a Twitter account <laughs> as well which is how we connected I know well we're excited to see what you do next Be sure to check out the show notes for links to connect with Dr. Lee on Twitter and to follow her research on ResearchGate this interview was made possible by CMIB SIG Connections. It's one of the many benefits of being part of the SIG. If you aren't a member yet, you can be. Check out our website for more information. If you would like to be interviewed or if you'd like to nominate someone else to be interviewed for a podcast or a future newsletter, get in touch with us via our website. Mm-hmm.